This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthed.com.au. We encounter several migraine myths or may even hold some ourselves. Here are some myths and how we can help our patients understand their migraine and their treatment better. In this podcast, I will be speaking to Dr. Bronwyn Jenkins. Dr. Jenkins, tell us about yourself. Oh, hi. Um, I'm a busy clinician who subspecialises in headache. I initially trained in stroke and I work in Sydney. Um, I'm the president of the Australian New Zealand Headache Society because it's my passion to educate people and improve access to new therapies for headache and migraine. Today, we're going to look at myths in headache. And I thought I might just hit you with the first one. Is psychological distress the cause of migraines or is it a myth? There are endless myths, aren't there? Um, Well, I think it's true that a lot of our patients that we meet with migraine end up with their disorder distressed and even fearful. So 70% of patients in a local study were fearful of their next attack. And we've now got a term for this. It's interictal burden because they're so worried about how the next attack's going to affect them, particularly if they have frequent attacks. But I think what we need to understand is that they are very severe, debilitating attacks that affect them in more than just a headache. And so they can't function. They lose complete control of their day and they can't even be who they want to be, let alone socialize. Um, do the family activities and get promotions at work. So it is a severe condition that has some natural distress associated with it. But on the other hand, anxiety and stress are leading triggers and other mood disorders for migraine escalation. So trying to have someone have formal techni- techniques, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy right through to re- relaxation um, techniques, can be quite powerful in helping them self-manage their attacks and stop them catastrophizing or escalating. It's part of our management rather than the whole reason. And I would say as a group, they're not all just anxious or neurotic, um, that really it is a severe disabling biological disorder but managing any anxiety associated with it is very worthwhile in their care yeah is it true that women get more headaches than men Bronwyn Yes, I think this is another way that that first myth stems from, that because it's predominantly a female disorder, um, back in the day when I was learning these things, uh, there was this sort of feeling that these patients tell us a lot of strange things. You know, they're they're head sensitive when they're washing their hair and perhaps that indicates some level of hypervigilance, neuroses, you know, something we don't understand. But now we can see the functional imaging lighting up in the pre-headache phases as premonitory symptoms, and we know that's 
um, more of a true thing. So yes, women do get more headaches mm -hmm. and it's gradually progressive over life in a lot of women, regardless of what other things are going on, even if they've done all the correct things. So you'll notice in any migraine trials, the median age is in their early 40s and it's about 80% of women that are presenting because they generally do get some more severe migraine attacks in the group that have menstrually related migraine too. So <laughs> we start off with the same prevalence um, in childhood and then it just takes off in a steep cliff in the men menstrual age, in menarche, mm -hmm. where women just leapfrog ahead of the gentlemen before settling down in the late menopause. So there are hormonal factors that mean that women have more migraine that isn't just emotional and is definitely biological. Now, as a specialist, what sort of myths do you encounter? Well, I think the most common thing is these days with increasing blogging and website searching um, and uh, looking at those things, there's a lot of misnomers floating around. Mm -hmm. So just to walk through the most basic ones, because we can be quite um, guided by the person in a short history, mm -hmm. but if they come in saying they have chronic migraine, we talk about chronic migraine when they have 15 days of headache of which ate a migraine by the international classification of headache disorders which is really useful because that group can't treat them effectively all the time with acute medicines they have to have preventive so it's a really useful thing to recognize but usually the patients are referring to the fact that they've had them since they were 13 years old or something like that so chronic doesn't mean the duration they've had it it really means the frequency that they're getting any headache disorder and we've got similar classifications for cluster and all other types of headache disorders mm -hmm. and then we have some patients that come in saying they have clusters of migraines mm -hmm. and I say oh what is that because cluster headaches are really distinct headache disorder that no one should miss you know there's unilateral features of tearing of the eye redness drooping stuffiness of the nose on just that side of the pain and um, fullness ringing and even decreased hearing in the ear on that side of the head pain and the head pain is always on that side and they're one hour attacks often starting in the early hours of the morning so as you can hear you wouldn't mistake that with a migraine so you've mm -hmm. often got to dig a little bit more if they tell you they've got cluster headache because most of them will have two to three days of migraine which is exactly the natural history of migraine. Migraine is defined as having four to 72 hours untreated. So if they say I have clusters of three days at a time, ask them politely for my sake to not use the term cluster headache because it's getting mm. really confusing. And then there's the old misnomers. So um, rebound headaches now called medication overuse headache. We don't have to get all of these things correct all the time, but it just helps in understanding what's actually going on. And it's usually them under treating the number of migraines they've got, but they've just got too many. And so end up taking too many analgesics and that chronic daily headache. I mean, I don't think that really helps in this new era with new therapies for chronic migraine to call it a chronic daily headache and not to recognize that if any of those 15 or more headache days are migraineous, that that trumps all and they should be treated as chronic migraine to be able to um, have chronic migraine treatments rather than being sent home with just tension type advice, which would be to distract themselves, go for a walk and try and push on and be less emotional about their debilitating headaches. So I think we don't want to miss the diagnosis in calling them the old fashioned terms that have been changed for those sorts of reasons to really encompass that migraine is more just than a headache. What you just said was very interesting. It says it really does depend on having more than 15 migraine episodes a month, I think you said. Uh, that's a yeah. definition and it trumps 
any other definition like chronic daily headache. Because what if some of the headaches have auras and others don't? Does that make a difference? Yeah. So I think we often wait for the the classic migraine, you know, that was migraine with a classic aura preceding it to tell us it was migraine. And when you dig, you might find they've had three of them in their whole life. They still have migraine with aura. They're still treated differently than those that have never had aura. But the majority of patients, three quarters of our patients won't ever have aura. So mm. you can't wait for that. But on the same spectrum, we're often waiting for the typical description of a unilateral throbbing headache, lying in a dark room, unable to move, needing to take strong analgesics and uh, vomiting. So, you know, don't wait for them to be vomiting in a bucket before you allow yourself to call this migraine because it doesn't need the full hand. It can be a bilateral, intense type pressure headache mm -hmm. with some sensitivity to light but not noise and some nausea on some of the occasions for it to still be migraine rather than needing the full hand by our current classification. And when we get more and more chronic headaches, we find that with that increased frequency, and I really agree with the current classification that chronic migraine has a mix of the tension and migraineous headaches because some of them just get a bit bland. So I make sure my patients describe what I call their most boring headaches, the ones that they don't even pay attention to, don't want to talk about, as well as capturing the worst headaches. Because if you just ask about the worst showstopper headaches, they'll often tell you they've got three to five a month, but they actually might have three to five terrible bedridden ones. But 10 or 12, and I'm thinking about a patient I saw today, moderate headaches that they could just push on with activities but couldn't exercise with, which is a really sensitive question to ask. Um, but then they've got um, eight other tension-type headaches they could run up a mountain with. It doesn't mean they don't have migraine anymore. That's just what chronic migraine starts to look like once they get more and more headache days. It's really important what we just discussed because really the myth therefore is it isn't a migraine unless it has and aura. So that's that's debunked. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, we've debunked them all. We're not like those guys on the telly where we have to blow things up to debunk it. We can say <laughs> it, right? <laughs> I think a lot of people have sat around in the room thinking about this classification for a long time. So I find it quite useful little tips to pass on because I think it it basically encompasses the most important key features of migraine that it should look like migraine, it should smell like migraine, but it doesn't have to be um a worse migraine, a show-stopping migraine headache every single time they have any of the headaches. And I remind my patients, it's not usual when they say, oh, I have a usual headache when I get dehydrated, or I have a usual headache when I'm tired or when I've had a wine. It's not usual to get a hangover with one glass of wine, right? right. They should talk to their friends. They should even talk to, you know, their husbands. So I think just reframing it that all of this is part of the disorder and therefore it helps us make sure that we're really capturing the fact that a lot of people have much more frequent headache days than we pick up as clinicians and therefore they qualify for chronic migraine treatment sometimes. Quick question, how often do you see a patient uh, referred from a GP who actually presents with a headache diary? It sounds like they should do one. Yeah, I know. And they're, often they'll come in and say, I have hormonal headaches. And you're like, how do you know that? Um, you know, where's your headache diary? And they don't have one. So very infrequently. And um, I think it's really hard to be on top of every, there's a reason I specialized. It's really hard to be on top of everything all of the time. And when I first started headache specialty, I realized why a lot of my colleagues don't even enjoy doing it because there's a lot to go over in a headache history. Mm -hmm. But there's some simple 
ways of downloading a headache diary so that Australian New Zealand Headache Society has downloadable headache diaries, lifestyle management tips, um, just on the general webpage, open access for any public members, which can be really useful in fast tracking um, the patient's care. But I think even then you need to direct them to be putting down their less exciting, lower grade headaches that they're not using their strongest treatments for, because it would just vastly shorten the time they need to figure out what's going on if they did have a headache diary because it just pops out of the page when they have three days in a row uh, which started two days before their menstrual period you know it's just so obvious sometimes having a migraine diary it's so helpful yep and, and from what i'm hearing bro and, and this is important any headache should be put down even though they think it's only mild it's not 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 stopping my day but it's there put it down anyway because it all adds up yeah, that's right. And don't miss the opportunity to diagnose the correct headache disorder, to minimise it by saying just tension type headache, because there's better therapies and we can't afford to miss the patients that are bad enough to actually come and see a doctor from getting appropriate care. This health ed educational segment is supported by Beatrice. The views expressed by the experts are entirely their own. Now, there is another myth that I think I'm aware of is that once a headache, once a migraine headache is well established, well, seriously, there's very little that can work for it, except for strong analgesia. Yeah, I I think it's certainly slightly true that once the horse is bolted, it's bolted. So on a daily basis, I have patients in distress saying they've got a terrible headache, what should they do? And, you know, my advice would be take everything in the cupboard that you've taken safely before. And my advice would not be necessarily to go to emergency unless it's a different type of headache, because as we know, it's not the answer to all chronic diseases to be there. But I do think it's useful to tell them to treat their migraine early their treatment does work the most effectively because it also stops it becoming an established two to three day attack that recurs, even if effectively initially treated, um, if they've taken it early. But at the same time, if they're on day two, and particularly if there's an ongoing trigger like the hormones, if they're on day two of a migraine, there's no point lying in bed feeling progressively sicker and mm-hmm. missing work without trying their triptan still. And there is still a high hit rate of patients having response with their moderately severe, not their worst ever migraines, but their moderately severe day two, day three migraines being um, stopped quicker than, so I still get my patients to treat them, even if they've missed the boat, although I do educate them to try and treat it as early as possible, as soon as they know it's going to be one of their worst migraine days. Are you aware of other myths out there, Bronwyn? Um, oh, the, the classic myth at the moment, um, that natural therapies are safer than traditional um, medical therapies. And so on the weekly, I have patients requesting um, cannabis, um, so CBD oil, which is probably only effective if um, titrated with THC in migraine. And when I say effective, I mean there's been um, significant research funds allocated to it for many years and Um, They must have been negative studies because we haven't had great studies coming out. We had some surveys, but the most recent studies suggest that it's got an analgesic effect and that it doesn't limit medication overuse in the longer term. The last um, medication overuse study showed those patients needing progressive increasing doses of cannabis over time, as well as increasing their natural background use of codeine. So 
I'm not as enthusiastic as I could be about CBD oil. And particularly um, in Australia, it means they can't drive at all if there's any THC. So <laughs> I think it's more disabling to commit them to not driving unless they're already not driving. Um, and I don't find it an effective overall stabilizing treatment. Another example in recent years has been Butterbur, really effective. We couldn't get it in Australia for a few years, um, but it's um, now got recognized toxicity and isn't used. So yeah, effective studies. But as we know, as clinicians, some of our most um, natural, our most toxic chemotherapy agents come from natural agents. So just because it's natural doesn't mean it's safer. It just means it's less regulated. And they usually don't come with as robust clinical trials. So be cautious out there about how much money patients are dipping into their natural care. I do suggest they um, try nutraceuticals um, and generally magnesium, B2, and a few other vitamins can help. And I do check for deficiencies as well. You know, if I have a, a lady with heavy periods or just postpartum, um, I, I would check for iron deficiency and those things. But I think don't um, spend the whole budget and time and energy on the natural therapies that are less proven in migraine management. What about physical therapies? Yeah, there's a lot. So I love being a headache specialist in Australia because everyone's tried everything before they come see me. They, I must have some horrible mean looking photo up on the internet or something. They've all tried these things before they see me. So it's a biased group. Um, there are patients where they need um, physical therapy for their neck. But if several sessions of uh, managing the neck has not manage the headaches and if the neck tension only comes as part of the headache days rather than on other days of the month then that's a common part of this migraine um, disorder that is firing off um, from this one center the trigeminose cervical nucleus in the brain so you get you get poorly localized pain in migraine is what I'm saying so I think try it if they've got a tight neck but don't again um, mortgage the whole house on it mm -hmm. and I think that there's different techniques of physio and any other physical therapy acupuncture is really um, well used it's helpful for some patients and I particularly like it in the pregnancy group when they can't do a lot of other medication type treatments it's probably less effective in my clinical practice than the, the medication options like botulinum toxin all right, the way around the head. But yeah, I think we, we've still got the natural therapies and the non-medication therapies to think about in some occasions without spending too much time on them. Because even the devices we've got, there's a little carefully device or a vagal nerve stimulator. The studies for devices are just not as robust. So we've got suggestion that they help, but they, have, they haven't got really the evidence that they're as preventive or as stabilizing as some of the good medications we have that we seem so reluctant to prescribe. You just mentioned pregnancy, Bronwyn. Is there a myth that in pregnancy, no medications can be given? Oh, yeah, that's a good myth. The, the biggest myth, I think, is pregnancy is a temporary disease. 40 weeks, I, don't, <laughs> I think 40 weeks is a long disease, right? Luckily, a lot of our patients improve in pregnancy. So there's a fortunate group that really do need less medications. You have to stay away from the teratogenic ones. There's a useful little page in the electronic therapeutics um, that I use regularly to print out and give to the patient that they can then show their obstetrician and GP lists the medications they can use safely. So paracetamol and metoclopramide for nausea are considered safe. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatories are commonly given between 20 and 30 weeks. Mm -hmm. And 
sumatriptan has had almost 30 years of data. It had an early small data study showing safety in pregnancy, which since then many pregnant women have used it. So I usually switch them off other newer triptans onto their sumatriptan for occasional use. Mm-hmm. If we're using preventives, which is really the, the you know end of the scale group, then propranolol, perhaps even lower dose, like 25 milligrams of amitriptyline may be safe in pregnancy. And some people even use Botox in later pregnancy, which I don't regularly do. Um, usually I'd, I'd make sure they're on their pregnancy supplement to make sure they don't get deficient in um, the nutrients while they're making another human being. But I think generally they can come off their preventives and use those natural therapies we've talked about as well as um, simple analgesics. And that's when unfortunately codeine creeps back in because you know with limited options and they can't take their usual anti-inflammatory there'll be occasions where they might in the first trimester need um, panadine fault or something that we don't usually like prescribing for Mm -hmm. migraine. I wonder this is just a question I'm wondering uh, how often we discuss with the patient not just diet but hydration Uh, is it something that is important for patients and does it affect the headache severity? That's an interesting one. So, I mean, one of the studies in emergency has been that Stematol, which stops the vomiting, is more effective than morphine, just leading on from my last evil codeine thought. So, yes, I think certainly managing hydration is important and um, not getting to that dehydrated stage of needing an emergency room is important. So I give all my patients an anti-emetic early on. There's a lot of migraine triggered by exertion. So if you, one of my most discerning questions between tension type headache and migraine would be whether they couldn't exercise or would limit their exercise on those days. So often we ask them if they lie in bed, that's too far gone. We need to ask them whether it at least limit um, what they'd want to do in that day because mm-hmm. tension type headache, as we know, they'll do anything um, still very confidently. Whereas migraine will escalate if they're doing exercise I think it's mainly about the exertion that they get more migraine with exertion with with exercise, but certainly you don't want to ignore dehydration. So um, high level sports people, um, marathon runners, I mean, first of all, I tell them that that's abnormal exercise. But secondly, I do offer them tips to, you know, stay prehydrate, stay hydrated and um, and make sure they get on top of the migraine if it does come out. And sometimes if there's a reliable trigger, we even pre-medicate with an anti-inflammatory. So the mm. classic in headache disorders is coital headache, which is a polite medical term for sex headaches. Mm. Um, and we would give them indomethacin 20 minutes before um, they're reaching the peak because then they don't get their awful headaches. That's a rare headache disorder. But um, I think with exertion, I've got some um, soccer players, for instance, who would take their non anti-inflammatory 20 minutes before their extreme exertion in the middle of summer, um, where, where they're reliably going to get a migraine um, mm. if they don't do that, as well as prehydrating to answer your actual question, which is about hydration. So I think... Mm. Patients are all coming to us and they've thought about dietary triggers and, you know, there's the top five of alcohol, chocolate, citrus is another one. But really, when you get to the everyone excluding gluten, everyone excluding all amines, which are really prevalent in everything, you don't have a high hit rate of people having control of their migraine disorder. So I usually tell them all about everything I tell everyone just in a simple fact sheet, again, downloadable from the Headache Society, if that's of any use, that lists off the top five things for them to consider and do one thing at a time to figure out what what are their things that worsen their migraine. But they're certainly not causal. They're just one of the many factors on those days. 
days that they actually have control about because they often don't have control about as much control about how well they slept the night before or what stress they're you know having going on in their lives so these are manageable things that should be thought about so yes i do talk about um, avoiding dehydration and those lifestyle factors with all my patients dr jenkins what are your final messages to our listeners well i think there's lots of myth myths um developed and developing about headache and migraine one of the biggest is that migraine is just another headache, but really it's easy to discern it from tension type headache and we shouldn't be missing that opportunity to diagnose it by picking the signs that happen sometimes rather than all the times in the attacks. And that we should understand these patients are suffering with a very severe headache disorder that with all the associated features means that they can't function as well. And so therefore they warrant proper treatment. I think we've touched on some interesting things like um, natural therapies not necessarily being more effective or safer than our medical therapies, but that lifestyle and other factors that are going on for that patient might be might be part of their useful treatment to consider. And so we should try and simplify things for ourselves as clinicians by having simple tools like a downloadable lifestyle factor page or headache diary to make some sense of it when they come back on the second visit to tell you how good their triptan or other medication was. So I think it's a really valuable area to work in because you'll get a lot of reward from these patients that have been sometimes misunderstood, undertreated, and undermanaged, and they'll be forever grateful if they can self-manage their migraine better and um, get on with life at their peak working age, productive years usually. So well worth getting into. Wonderful words of wisdom. Thank you, Dr. Jenkins. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.